tonight's topical study. We're continuing along um, the line of apologetics. We're looking at examples of apologetics in Scripture, particularly from Peter, Paul, and Isaiah. So that'll be fun. Josh, as always, is going to uh, lead us through that. So Josh will pray for us and get into the meat and potatoes of it. So you can do that whenever, whenever you feel like, Josh. I might just let you sit for some few more minutes of silence before I do. Just oh man, no. can't handle the silence. <laughs> All right, uh, I'll pray and we'll start. Lord, help us to understand your word and to make use of it. Amen. All right. So, uh, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, I highly recommend going back and listening uh, to the podcast, as I'm not going to over-explain a lot of things tonight, because we have a lot of text to work through. I would probably use most of my time just reading the three texts I have out loud, and if I want to provide any kind of explanation or commentary... We're going to have to move pretty quickly. So go back and listen if you haven't been here. Otherwise, you might be confused. Hopefully, it's still helpful either way because it is God's word and reading it and understanding it is helpful regardless if you know all of the context that I'm bringing these texts into, uh, at least within our discussions that we've been having. So that being said, we'll jump right in to Isaiah chapter 44 starting in verse 9, and uh, this is how Isaiah is rounding out the what's the section of Isaiah called the trial of the false gods. This section is abundantly helpful, and we'll return here numerous times in the next few weeks when we start looking at very specific examples of uh, worldviews that we would engage with the Christian worldview in order to demonstrate the falsehood of the other worldviews and any of those worldviews that possess some kind of polytheistic religion or polytheistic beliefs, the trial of the false gods is incredibly helpful in terms of a section of scripture to, to bring to bear to that situation. This particular part of it is a very good example of uh, what we were talking about a few weeks ago about the, the two different approaches that we take in apologetics, the, the offensive approach involving stepping into the opposing worldview and deconstructing it from the inside. That's exactly what Isaiah does here in this text. So I'm going to read it, and then honestly, it explains itself for the most part, which is great. The argument's pretty straightforward, but I will summarize it after I read it. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. 
he shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, unless it grows strong among the trees of the forest, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that, so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that, so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment, to say, Half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? So Isaiah is addressing the idolatry of the pagan cultures around him, as well as addressing the idolatry of the Israelites. As they participate in this idolatry, what should be obvious to them and is not is that their gods are made of stuff that they make a idol and fear it and worship it out of the same wood that they cook their bread over that they warm their house with with a fire that it's made of the same stuff that anything created which is the point earlier uh, in the chapter that we didn't read, that anything created cannot be God by virtue of it being created. That God, at the minimum, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things, which means that God himself is uncreated. And so any religious worldview that has created deities has gods they worship that are made even if that making is by human hands as is the case here uh, where he's pointing out not only that they craft their idols themselves uh, but that the idols are merely crafted or if the worldview contains within it a supernatural belief that there are deities that are created as these like sub deities by an over god or something along those lines or even that they just materialized out of infinite matter or something like that which will go through a couple of religions that believe those kinds of things in the next few weeks all of those are refuted by isaiah here in this chapter specifically in the text that we read he's saying that you can't consider something a god that you split the wood half of it you cook your meat on and the other half you carve into a face uh, a, a human figure and you fall down and worship it note also the the fact that it's carved into a human figure is uh, he's they're they're making the idols after their own image but rather they are made in the image of their creator they've reversed 
that reality. So he's stepping into their world for a moment and pointing out something absurd to them, saying, can't you see this? No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of I burned in the fire, I baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. Shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Uh, this is the point that he's making, stepping into their world and saying, this is crazy. You're living like a crazy person because you know that that's just a block of wood. You know that's not God. You've never heard, and later on, he and earlier, he also goes into this where the, 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 those wooden idols, they do not speak, they do not hear, they do not see. And yet God, the creator, sees all, speaks the world into being, and hears all in his creation. <clears throat> so there is a antithesis, which is a word I haven't used enough of yet during these uh, discussions. There's an antithesis between the God of the Bible and the God of the idol maker. There's a contradiction between them. They're, they are not alike. They're categorically different. So that's Isaiah. It's an Old Testament example. There's more of these kinds of examples in Scripture, but I, for sake of time, I only chose a few. Now we're going to go to the New Testament. We're going to go to the book of Acts. We're going to look at Peter and Paul, both speaking to very different audiences, because a question that comes up often is, your apologetic method seems fine and good with the atheist, but how does it jive with a Muslim? How does it work with a Jewish person who actually believes and even affirms some of the same scriptures you do and their authority? How, how do you handle that? What do you do? So we're going to look at Peter for that. A very good example because he's speaking to Jews who believe the Old Testament scriptures. And so he makes prolific use of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and, and again, steps into their perspective and, and, and points out an inconsistency. They say they believe the scriptures, but they reject the conclusion that the scriptures lead to. Their position is absurd. They're living a lie. Paul is going to do the same thing with the Greeks in Athens. And that's a good example of kind of a uh, approach to a polytheistic pagan context. Um, so we'll turn to Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read this whole sermon because I think it's one very, very good. It is the word of God after all, but also to show how he sets all of this up and, and the way that he argues and, and is thinking just days after the ascension of Christ at the beginning of the book of Acts. So for some context, this is uh, right after the uh, after Pentecost happens, the giving of the, the Holy Spirit to the first Christians uh, in Jerusalem, in the upper room, and then Peter uh, after the tongue-speaking event draws quite a crowd, Peter addresses them, stands with the 11, the other 11 uh, disciples who are now apostles, and gives this sermon to the crowd. So verse 14, But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. 
for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he starts by quoting the Old Testament, quotes the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice that last line is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. So now he's, he's going to bring the Christian worldview to, into collision with their understanding of the world. Because they're still looking for the Messiah. And he's going to say, actually, he's, he's come. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So now he quotes the Psalms. He quotes David from Psalms. So he's using the Old Testament again. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. So now he's exegeting the text. He's actually explaining what's going on. He's saying, actually, we know that David was prophesying. He, he was telling about a future event because he's dead. He, he was not raised up. The way that this text seems to indicate. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor to his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we, are, we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This quotation is picked up in the book of Hebrews and one of the uh, most exalted texts we have of, of a New Testament author lifting up the full deity of the Messiah. He quotes that text right there to argue that Christ indeed is is above categorically ontologically above the angels um so 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 far what what peter has done here is walking them through old testament texts again standing on the truth of the scripture rightly understanding it and interpreting it to them that they don't un if they understood these old testament texts because he says you you know about jesus you, uh, as you yourselves know, he was with you, he taught, he did signs and wonders, 
uh, and he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You know this. It was done in your presence. It was not hidden under a rock. Uh, God did this openly before you, and yet you didn't see what was happening because you didn't actually understand the Old Testament text, or rather refuse to believe it. Jesus says over and over, you know, if you understood Moses, you would you would understand me. To paraphrase. <clears throat> so he continues, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he says, based upon the scriptural witness that explains the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you can have certain knowledge of the identity of this Jesus, Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And so that is what happens when, when the word of God is brought to bear and the Holy Spirit is working through his word. Men are cut to the heart and seek out salvation. Because as, as, as Isaiah said earlier in Isaiah 44, uh, their eyes have been closed. Their ears have been stopped. They neither hear nor see nor understand. They don't have discernment. To, to see their absurdity. And that's what these guys were living in the same, they were living in a lie. They were living as if it was not the Messiah who was crucified, as if Jesus did not perform these mighty works, as if there was nothing special about him, but rather he was a criminal who was rightly put to death. And yet Peter confronts their delusion with the truth. And they are cut to the heart and repent. Finally, we'll look at two cases with the Apostle Paul. Uh, one, as a further proof of him using the truth of the scriptures, here, uh, Acts 17, start in verse 1, just read verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, uh, and then we'll move into his speech in Athens to show that while he does not quote the scriptures the way that Peter does to the Athenians, he is still utilizing the antithesis, the antithetical nature of the Christian worldview and the pagan one in this case, and, and bringing them into collision with each other, standing upon the truth of scripture and reducing to absurdity the, the claims of the pagan worldview. Acts 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So when it says devout Greeks, those were the God-fearers. They were Greeks who... Uh, had converted intellectually at, and, and, in, and in practice and life to Judaism, essentially. Um, so they had rejected the polytheism of, of the Greek Greco-Roman world and were worshiping Yahweh. And, and that's, uh, this is devout Greeks or God-fearers or things like that. 
That's what that means if you see that in the New Testament. So he reasons with them from the Old Testament directly because they're familiar with the Old Testament. Now, what he's going to do in Athens is he's going to reason with them from the truth of the Old Testament without quoting it prolifically because it, it would be nonsense to them. However, the truth of it, they do know, as we know Paul believes by what he says, as we've looked at Romans 1, where he says, oh, everyone knows the true God. He has given them no excuse. Uh, he has revealed himself in a full and complete way, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so he's going to bring the truth to bear upon them. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. We have a similar sensation here in Paul to Isaiah, where he is quite provoked in the mockery that ensues in the text that we read. It's like, isn't this ridiculous? You're worshiping an idol, that same block of wood that you cut to make your food. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the reason they concluded that is they assumed that Jesus was a new God, not Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, but he was he was a, he was a new God, and because he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus, they assumed that that resurrection was a God, that it was some kind of, of of life deity, because the word for life and resurrection are very closely connected, and and so they were thinking, oh, he's he's bringing some new deities to us, wonderful, because we need more of those in our in our Greco-Roman pagan life and they took him and brought him to the areopagus and and the areopagus was this big arena basically on a hill uh some translations might say mars hill um and it it was you they had all kinds of things that they would do there but usually it was for kind of speeches lectures discourse dialogue philosophical mumbo jumbo that people would engage in in athens i mean this is this is athens this is the home of 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 the birthplace of greek philosophy socrates plato etc aristotle the whole trio there so of course they have a reserved space where they do this it has good acoustics you can hear everyone and, and whatnot that was kind of the idea that's the areopagus now, what's important to realize is the Areopagus would be in sight of uh, the, the the major temples in Athens as well. You'd be able to look behind you at any point, it's on a hill, and see all of the idols that caused Paul such distress. So it's important to remember that, that he's saying these things with all of these idols in, in full view. So they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they're not 
interested in something that's going to contradict what they believe. They just want to add a new thing uh, to their current beliefs or just to know something. They're, they're pursuing knowledge for its own sake, uh, as philosophers do, rather than for the sake of glory of God. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, this could have been a bit of a jab uh, about the rank idolatry, or it could have been a sincere comment. We don't know because we don't get tone communicated uh, through the scriptures. Either way, uh, that's how he opens. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So just to make sure they didn't miss the favor of any particular gods that might be out there, they had an altar to an unknown one. This is this is how ridiculous their worship was. And that's, he's, he's going to point this out to them. Their polytheism is absurd. Uh, the, these gods are not consistent. They don't agree with each other. And, just, and, and there might be gods out there that they don't know about. And they even make an altar to those gods. Just in case. Just to check all of our boxes. Make sure we're safe. We'll worship that god as well. In case that god controls part of our lives that, that we weren't aware of. The god who made the world. And everything in it. And now we know right here. That, you know, he says, therefore you, what you, therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, that he is not referring to any God like the ones that they believe in. Because in their worldview, there's not a single God who made the world and everything in it, who is Lord of heaven and earth. Um, so, so he's already, he's bringing the truth of the scripture to bear upon their worldview system. Saying, you know, the, the, the God that you're, you're trying to check all your boxes. Well, guess what? <laughs> uh, let me tell you about you worship as unknown, but you do know him. Because here's why. He made the world, everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples made by man. And he's saying that with all of their majestic temples in the backdrop. He's tearing it all down. But the God who made everything, which contradicts, by the way, pretty much their entire pantheon. Because each of their gods either create or manage or are, are, are you know, subject to some part of the created order. He says, no, this is the, the God who made everything, Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So if you are familiar at all with the Greco-Roman worship, they would offer sacrifices and food and things, all kinds of gifts and things like that. They would bring them into the temples and, and set them before these statues within these temples. Now, does God require sacrifices in the Old Testament? Yes, he does. Does he require gifts? No, he does not. Sacrifices are not for God's sake, but for the people's sake. It's for atonement. It's because they've sinned. <clears throat> but for the Athenians, their gods need to be served. Food. They need to be given gifts. Otherwise, they won't 
They won't eat. <laughs> they can't sustain themselves. Nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so again, we have a contradiction and antithesis between the God of Scripture and the Greek pantheon, where each of them gives different aspects of, of livelihood to the people. No, this God, he gives you life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And so now he's using Genesis, isn't he? And it's really what he's doing. He's really exegeting Genesis 1 without quoting it to them. God made everything. And because he made everything, he doesn't live in temples made by man. And he doesn't need anything because he made everything. And he made from one man, who's that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. And so this is the, he, he's pointing them to the knowledge that they do have, the revelation God has given clearly through what he has made, through them, them being made in his image, and uh, through them living in his world, which is, he's going to point to both of those things. For uh, now he's quoting a Greek poet here. In him we live and move and have our being, but he's he's taking it out of context and giving it new meaning. <laughs> um, so he's pointing to God being the sustainer of life, the giver of life, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And now Paul does not mean here to imply that we are literally the offspring of, of, of God in a, in a literal child type relationship where God births us somehow. Um, he's referring to image bearing. And that is the closest thing they will understand. That's the concept that they can understand. Because he's going to, to, to make sure that they, that they don't get this wrong. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he's bringing them now, go in Old Testament, second commandment. Don't make an image of Yahweh out of the things that are made and don't worship an image. Uh, why? Because we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then so he brings the gospel to bear, calling them to repent and believe in the risen Jesus, the Lord. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believe along, among whom also were Dionys Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul's Areopagus speech brings the truth of the Old Testament, though he does it in a more creative fashion than just quoting 
lines of the Bible. And this shows us something important. This is what I want to get to. When I say we stand on the truth of Scripture and, and we bring it, the truth to bear in an apologetic situation with an unbeliever, um, it doesn't mean that you quote Bible verses at them repeatedly. You can do this just as well. Um, if they have familiarity with the Bible, it's good to do that. And, and, and it's good to do that if they don't as well, to, to sh quote scripture and then explain it. But you have to know it well enough to explain it. You can't just barrage people with a slew of verses and expect um, them to understand what you're trying to communicate. Especially if they don't have a prior context for the Bible. You have to start slow with that kind of thing. Um, and start from the beginning. Start with Genesis, because that is the, the things that have been made so abundantly clear through creation. Romans 1 stuff, that God is the creator of all things, that he is the standard of all things, that He uh, that, that we bear his image. And that's what establishes so much of uh, human society and relationships and value and dignity, that he's a standard of morality. These kinds of things. Uh, our Genesis 1 stuff that you can start there, and it's a good place to start. Um, but he doesn't leave Jesus out of it. He, he circles back around. He says, he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, uh, there's a lot of lessons here that I couldn't go into all of them, but keep these verses in mind, study them, write them down somewhere in front of your Bible, or if you write in your Bible, just useful apologetics method verses. Isaiah 44, Acts 2, Acts 17. Uh, it's helpful just looking at those as our example of ways we can go about this kind of thing. Obviously, our context is very different, and so we're going to look at making an application of the method presented here to more contemporary, unbelieving worldviews over the next few weeks. But until then, that is all I have. So I will pray, and we'll be done. Or we'll go to questions, and then we'll be done. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. It's that it abides forever, that we can make use of it in our day, just as Peter and Paul did in theirs, to confront the unbelief around us and the unbelief in our own hearts. Amen. Amen. Well, like Josh said, it's now time for, for questions. So if you have questions, you can put it either in the Bible study chat uh, or if you want to use your voice, you can do that as well. I guess just be mindful of other people trying to talk. But yeah, now's the time for questions. Won't surprise me if there aren't too many. I don't know that I said anything overly controversial and just kind of pointing you to some biblical text. That's okay. I'm sure there will be plenty when we start doing the... Uh, worldview other worldviews next few weeks very true
well, uh, no one's typing, no one's talking, so we can officially be done. 